You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hey, uh, we started a series uh, last week called Moment Makers, talking about women that God used in his mission, and we are excited to keep that going today. Um, I don't know if you've known this, but in the last few years, there's been a social craze that has swept North America, uh, and it is around DNA tests. How many of you, show of hands, have done the DNA test thing recently? Anybody? few of you? Okay, 21 and me. Is that what it's called? No, 23 and me. Sorry. Uh, I'm not, yeah, my bad. Um, so th- this Ancestry.com family tree stuff is incredibly popular now. It is, it is currently the second most visited category of websites on the whole internet. Uh, and the first most visited category of websites is the kind of websites you shouldn't go to because they show you inappropriate things, okay? There's kids in the service today, but you know what those are called. So this is second place to that. Very popular uh, stuff. MIT put out an article in February of this year uh, saying that 26 million people took a DNA test in 2018. 26 million people. Just for funsies, that's the whole population of Texas. 26 million people. More than uh, Washington, Idaho, uh, Oregon, all that stuff. 26 million people. Um, Speaking of Texas, my mom lives in Texas. She was one of the 26 million people. Uh, So she got a 23andMe test, uh, and she did the swab, the whole thing, and she called me one day, and she's like, Josh, you're not going to believe this. Uh, You and I are like partially Hispanic and partially Native American. And I'm like, yeah, mom, like... (laughs) My grandma told me that, like my skin color told me that. I've tried to grow a beard and I can't. I know, I know what's happening to me. I could have saved you a hundred bucks and uh, just told you who we are, but she's stoked about it. And it gives you like, 23andMe gives you all this info, like a thousand people that might be your relatives. And my mom is like, she's in. She's Facebook stalking everybody that might be her relative. She lives for this stuff. Um, I told her I was going to talk about this today and she like sent me the whole thing. And so she stalks some lady um, on Facebook who lives in Corpus Christi, Texas, who might've been her cousin and like reaches out to this lady. Apparently this lady's into this stuff too also. And so she like responds and now they're buddies and they're like friends. She met her like third cousin on uh, 23andMe and now they're like connected and all in with each other. They might visit each other and you're like, okay, mom, um, be careful out there. Facebook has people that aren't real, so whatever. But she's all in. She loves it. She loves it. So whether you're skeptical of the science of this or not, it's a big deal. Like this is a big deal for people. Something in us wants to know where we came from. It's appealing to know your genealogy, your lineage, because if you figure out your family, to some degree, you're, you're looking to your family to figure out who you are. And, and we are all in search of knowing who we are. There's, there's TV shows built on this. These famous people like do this ancestry.com and then they find out they're like, I am 20% Irish. And they're crying. They're like, I always loved Ireland. I knew. And you're like... I can't believe I watched that for an hour. Like, that's a thing. It's on, it's a thing on TV. So people are looking for who they are. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, what's interesting is when, when you were to, if you were to take that same concept of family lineage and apply it to spiritual family, um, oftentimes we, we're, we're less interested in putting the effort to looking at spiritual family. Uh, and if you look at the Bible and the genealogies in the Bible, like honestly, those are the places you like read through really fast. Like, I don't know if any of you were in first or second Chronicles today or this week, like reading through the genealogies with all your heart and tears in your eyes. Like, oh God, this is so great. Probably not. 
Probably not. Uh, you're reading through it fast and you're like, I can't pronounce any of these people's names. What does this even mean? But, but stay with me. L- last week we looked at Esther and we talked about the sovereignty of God and how God was with Esther. And if Esther doesn't go before the king and do what she does, then we don't get Jesus. And that's a big deal. So, so she was radically used in the mission of God. And, and so God is orchestrating events in human history. So things aren't just happening. God is doing things to get us somewhere. And so there's a place in scripture today that we're going to look at that again, show us God's intentions so clearly and so profoundly, yet oftentimes we skip right over it. Why do we skip right over it? Because it's found in a genealogy. And so today we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. And we're going to see that that there are four, there's actually five, but four women listed in the genealogy. And if we miss this, uh, we missed a really profound thing God is trying to show us in our spiritual family. So if you have a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Matthew chapter one? Matthew chapter one, verse one is where we're gonna be. Uh, and just for a quick backstory, God's people, the people of Israel, uh, they had been promised a king and they've, they've been waiting on a king. The whole Old Testament is the story of the promised king who's gonna come and his name would be uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's gonna come from the line of David, which is also the line of Abraham. And so a genealogy is a way of recording how God keeps his promises. This is how God kept his promises. That's why it's being recorded. And it's also showing that God is sovereign over human history. He's working things. And so Matthew wrote this genealogy to prove who Jesus is, to prove he's the Messiah, he's in the line of David, and he is qualified to sit on the throne. That's why the genealogy is there. So you got 41 names, three segments over 2,000 years of history. Here we go, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zareph, whose mother was Tamar. Underline that, first lady, Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Again, just read them fast and everybody doesn't care. Nashon's the father of Solomon. If you don't understand something, go fast. Uh, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, second woman listed. Boaz was the father of Obed, who was the mother whose mother was Ruth, third lady. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife was named Bathsheba. She would be the fourth woman listed. If you were to go through the rest of the genealogy, it doesn't list another woman until Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. So Jesus' genealogy included women, which would be very unusual in this time period because this is a patriarchal society. So for the genealogy to include these women was a fascinating intentionality. And so here we go. Women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. That, that's a significant thing for us to look at. Why is that significant? Because women in the ancient world, the, the experience they had was dark and evil and broken. And the ancient world, there was such a strong gender division that women were seen at best as second class citizens. At worst, they were seen as slaves and treated like property. 
They couldn't inherit property. They often weren't educated, like usually weren't educated. They weren't valued. Their testimony was not valid in the eyes of the court. You could not bring a woman forward to be a witness in a trial, which is fascinating that the first women to show up at the resurrected the tomb where Jesus resurrects are women. So they are the witnesses, which in that world, they wouldn't have been able to be witnesses. That's a fascinating subversion in the gospel story. Who's the first one to the tomb? Women. You like that, don't you? Patriarchal loser. No, okay, too far. <laughs> Sin, it was sinful, it was broken, not, not designed, not the design. And when this is happening and women are treated this way, who are made in the image of God, who, who are made absolutely in the same equality as men in the, in the image of God, there's nothing uh, second class about them. When you treat them that way, it doesn't lead to flourishing. And you see that even today in countries that still treat women this way. When women are oppressed, there is no flourishing. It's broken, it's evil. And that's not just cultural, that was also religious in Jesus's day. There was a Jewish prayer called the Shema where, where these, these religious men would get up every morning and pray, thank you God that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was like the morning prayer. Coffee and the Shema. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. There's another old saying that was known among religious men that said, it's better to burn the law than teach it to a woman. It's better to burn the law than teach it to a woman. So if you were a reader of Matthew, if you got the gospel of Matthew, you're like, I'm gonna read the story of Jesus, you would have been shook up by seeing the women listed in this genealogy. And by the way, the women that Matthew, and by, and by Matthew, I mean the spirit of God inspiring Matthew to, to list these women. It's not like he listed Sarah and Rebecca. It's not like he listed the good ones. He listed the cousin or the grandma that you don't want anybody to know about. He's like, you, you mean to tell me you're gonna list four women and you choose Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? Come on, bro. You could have done better for us than that. Unless... Unless this is also God's sovereignty, this is also God's design, this is also God's intent, which I submit to you, what Matthew exposes is what God wanted to be exposed. And what we might have hidden behind is not what God wanted to hide. And so the first woman listed in the genealogy of Jesus is Tamar. This is not a fun story out of Genesis chapter 38. Like none of you are gonna do family devotions tonight out of Genesis 38. Okay, here's why, you ready? Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids. One of those kids was named Judah. If you have church background, you might've heard Jesus being called the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Judah. 12 kids, one of them is Judah. Judah has three sons. One of those sons is married to Tamar. He dies. The way it works is one of the other two sons was supposed to go and impregnate Tamar. This is this Old Testament world. Don't email me, okay? It's in the Bible. Supposed to go impregnate Tamar so she can continue the lineage. He doesn't do it. God kills him too. That's how God worked back then. You disobey, you die. Don't email me, okay? In the Bible. He's a good God, trust me. Um, so then the third son... Judah's a little nervous, like, I don't want to send the third son to not do the job, so I'm not going to do it. And so Tamar is stuck, and in that world, that's a bad place to be. Without a husband, without protection, without a lineage, like, it is bad. And so she takes matters into her own hands when, when Judah will not give the third son to her. And Judah's an evil dude, and he has a 
he has a hobby, a habit, I shouldn't say hobby, he sleeps with prostitutes. And Tamar knows that. This is a fun story. You guys having fun yet? Okay, cool. Tamar knows that Judah sleeps with prostitutes, so she dresses herself like a prostitute and goes and sits where Judah goes by and picks prostitutes. Guess who Judah picks? Tamar. He picks his daughter-in-law, who is dressed like a prostitute. They sleep together. She gets pregnant. Judah doesn't have any money to pay Tamar, so he offers her staff and a ring, staff and a ring to pay. She grabs the staff and the ring, goes back into her widow gear, and hangs out. A few months later, she's showing, right? Guess who's mad about it? Judah. He's like, bring that wicked woman to me. Who got her pregnant? She's going to (laughs) burn. Tamar shows up and says, the person that got me pregnant is the owner of this staff and this ring. And Judah's like, oh no, that's my staff and my ring. You mean to tell me? Yeah, I mean to tell you, Tamar says. So in Genesis chapter 38, verse 26, Judah recognizes them, the staff and the ring, and says, she is more righteous than I, (laughs) since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah, the third son, and he did not sleep with her again. And you go, why is that story even in the Bible? What am I supposed to take from that? How do I teach that to my children? How is this a good story? Kids gather around, let me tell you about Tamar. This this is a tough one, right? If she doesn't do that, we don't get Jesus. That's God working in evil, crazy circumstances. And she moves forward and the story moves forward. And then the story moves forward to the next woman mentioned. Her name is Rahab. Rahab lives in Jericho. Jericho is a city in the book of Joshua that the Israelites are about to conquer. They are about to take, God has given them the city. They're about to take Jericho. But before they take Jericho, Joshua sends in some spies to scope out Jericho. Where do these spies stay? They need to stay at a house where men come in and out and no one notices. Guess what kind of house that is? The house of, you guessed it, a prostitute because men and women can come in and out of there and it's no big deal. The spies stay at Rahab's house. Rahab is a prostitute of Jericho. And some soldiers in Jericho finally hear, hey, there's these other spies that are here and they run into the house and they try to catch the spies in the act and Rahab hides them. And and in Joshua chapter two, verse eight, you get one of the most beautiful professions of faith in the entirety of the Old Testament from the Jericho prostitute Rahab. Here's what you read in Joshua chapter two. It says, before the spies laid down for the night, she, Rahab, went up to the roof where she was hiding them, and she said to them, I know that the Lord, the Lord, that's major terminology. She is not an Israelite. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That's the Exodus story. We heard about the Exodus story. Uh, And when you came out of Egypt and we heard what you did in uh, Sihon and Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. 
our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. This is a profound profession of faith in the book of Joshua by a woman who should not have this kind of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, it lists out people, what's known as the hall of faith. You know, like the hall of fame is a sports term, like the hall of faith. Guess who's in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith? Rahab, Rahab. So just as God has ordained, Israel takes the city of Jericho, they save Rahab's family, and she is not just saved, she is actually brought into the family of Israel. She marries an Israelite, and Rahab the prostitute becomes the mother of Boaz. And you go, what? You mean to tell me Boaz's mom is Rahab? And if you have any church background, you're like, Boaz is the male character in the story of Ruth, who's the Christ-like figure known as the kinsman redeemer of this whole family. That guy's mom was Rahab? Yeah, the, the prostitute from Jericho raises one of the godliest men in the Old Testament. Talk about a turn of events. Godliest man in the Old Testament, one of the godliest guys, which leads to the third woman mentioned in the genealogy, which is Ruth. Ruth is not a prostitute. Good news. Good news. You... Two for two, but not two for three. Not three for three. She, she was a Gentile Moabite. So she would be the ultimate outsider racially and socially. Her ancestry had, uh, if you were to look at her 23 and me, it goes all the way back to like Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and it's broken and bad. But she has a book of the Bible named after her. The Old Testament Jewish book, the the story in the Old Testament has the name of a Gentile Moabite as one of the, like a book in the Bible named after her. And she, her mother-in-law's name's Naomi. I know this is a lot of names, so stay with me. I'm going somewhere, I promise. Her mother-in-law's name, Naomi. Naomi loses her husband, Ruth loses her husband, and you've got a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law who are like connected so deeply. They're like kindred. They're all in as family. They have one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible that people use at marriage ceremonies. Like husbands and wives use this terminology. Like you'll go to a wedding and you'll hear this passage and you're like, oh, that's so beautiful about a man and a woman. No, that's about a mom and a daughter. Like in Ruth chapter one, it says this, but Ruth said to Naomi, this is her mother-in-law, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. When you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. That's mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. They moved to a town called Bethlehem. You may have heard of that. Something happens in Bethlehem later. They moved to Bethlehem. They are poor, they have no money, they have no family, they are outsiders, and there's a rich guy named Boaz who has these fields. And one of the kind things you can do is let people who don't have resources glean from the fields after the work hours. So Boaz, the rich guy, owns the field. Who's gleaning in the field? Ruth. Boaz sees Ruth. She's a Gentile Moabite. She shouldn't be the kind of person that Boaz is interested in. Maybe his mom has told him a story or two Maybe Rahab, being his mom, has helped him see that God has a bigger plan for this thing than just the Israelites. 
So he has a tenderness towards Ruth. And ultimately he marries Ruth, redeeming for her whole family line, possession, inheritance, birthright, connection. He becomes the kinsman redeemer. He is an insider who has a birthright, who can offer an outsider something they don't have. Does that sound like another story in the Bible? Someone who has power and birthright and identity and authority who can offer someone who doesn't have that an entrance into it. And that's the story of Ruth. So Boaz and Ruth have a son named Obed who is King David's grandpa. King David, major person in the Old Testament. uh, And this is the fourth person in the story, Bathsheba. King David sends his army off to war and he stays behind. That was his first mistake. He goes out on the balcony. He sees a woman bathing who is very beautiful. He sees her and summons her. Her name is Bathsheba, which in the Hebrew means she be bathing. No? Dad joke? No? Okay, awesome. Just trying to keep you with me. Nope. Later you'll be like, that's funny. Bathsheba, she be bathing. That's funny. Okay, whatever. Come back. All right, I know. Lots of stories. That's not what it means in the Hebrew at all. It means something different like beautiful inheritance or something. I'm not sure. Google it. This is a dark story. He summons Bathsheba and she like has to show up. Then he sleeps with her because she like has to. That's dark and broken. Then he's so shady that he gets her husband, military general Uriah, to come back from the field, gets him drunk and tries to get him to sleep with Bathsheba so it can cover the whole thing up. Uriah is an honorable man, does not want to sleep with his wife while his men are on the field, so he doesn't do it. So King David gets vengeful, sends Uriah to the front line of the field, ultimately giving him a death sentence. So now Uriah is dead and Bathsheba has been summoned, has been forced upon, is grieving the loss of her husband and now has to marry David. David. That's the story. And it's a broken story. And the prophet Nathan has this profound moment of calling David on his sin. David repents before the Lord. And ultimately, through a series of God's sovereign events in human history, they have a son named Solomon. And the story moves forward. And the story continues. And the genealogy of Jesus moves forward. And you go, These are tragic and dark stories. Why would you pick these stories to include in the genealogy? This does not make God look good. Or does it? Ancient genealogies were a way of making theological claims about promises, about who God is and what God does. And Matthew's readers would have understood exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it by including these in the genealogy. And here's what's happening. Here's what Matthew, the Spirit of God, writing through Matthew is saying to us. That Jesus is qualified to sit on the throne and be our king. And these are the kinds of people who are invited into the kingdom. That's what the picture of the genealogy of Jesus is telling us. He is qualified to be on the throne. And as I tell you the lineage and the genealogy, and I tell you the story of what makes him qualified to be on the throne, I am going to intentionally put forth four women that beautifully illustrate the kind of people that will be a part of the kingdom that this king reigns over. 
in case you get it mixed up, that you think this is about men or about power or about authority or about where you were born and how you're brought up and somehow this is all connected to you in that way, in case you think that way, let me, let me make sure you hear the story of Tamar and the story of Rahab and the story of Bathsheba and the story of Ruth so that you can see the kind of people that God invites into his kingdom. Again, he doesn't use Sarah. He doesn't use Rebecca. He doesn't use Rachel. The matriarchs of Israel are not brought up. Instead, he mentions the Canaanites, the prostitute, the Moabite, the people that Israel would have said, those people are failures. They cannot be a part of this. And God is showing us something that he is not ashamed to make that known to us because he's doing something that's upside down. Uh, Author Tim Keller says this, he says, in ancient times, there was a concept of ceremonial uncleanliness. If you wanted to stay holy or respectable or good, you had to avoid contact with the unholy. That, That would be the people we're talking about here. The unholiness was considered to be contagious, as it were. And so you had to stay away and stay separate from that. Those are the bad ones, the Moabites, the Gentiles, the the sinners, they, they stay away from those people. But Jesus turns that around. His holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. That's the story. That God is not afraid of darkness. He's not afraid of sin. He's not afraid of struggle because your struggle does not change his character. His character changes your struggle. So he says, bring on the unholiness because it doesn't contaminate me. My holiness actually contaminates you. So I'm willing to put that stuff forefront in the genealogy because I need to tell you what this is about and I need to tell you what I'm capable of. So again, your dark past, this is what being taught in the genealogy, your dark past and your present struggles don't disqualify you. They simply put on display how qualified Jesus is to save. Why would you include these women? Because they show the magnitude of the mercy of God. They show the scandal of the grace of God. They show the glory of the salvation of God. They put on display the qualifications of Jesus. So if anyone were to come to Jesus and say, my past is too dark, my sin is too much, my story's too broken, my family's a hot mess. If anybody were to come to Jesus and say, you can't save me, my story's a mess. Jesus would say, hey, come here, let me, let me tell you about my great, 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 great grandma, Rahab. Let me tell you about her. Let me tell you about Tamar. Let me tell you about Ruth. Let me tell you the story of how I was brought into this world to save people like you. I was brought into this world by people like you to save people like you. And God was doing something in that. He was using evil for good. He was using sinful, wicked people full of chaos and messes to accomplish his will. He did it in the genealogy and he's doing it today in our lives. That's how he operates. He does not demand that you clean yourself up before you come to him. He just demands you come to him just as you are. And that's how you get cleaned. It's so fascinating to me that, that we act like what year it is like progresses us further into like enlightenment or knowledge or brilliance. And so we're like, we can't trust this old ancient Bible. It's irrelevant. It's ridiculous. It's 2019. We need to grow up, not trust this book. And I go, in the genealogy of Jesus, you get the three most trending cultural issues turned on their head in the genealogy of Jesus. 2019's three most 
cultural hot topic issues, gender equality, social justice, and racism. In the genealogy of Jesus, the most authoritative thing in the world, God Almighty, bows low and shows mercy and grace and gives access and equality to those who are outsiders, to those who are poor, to those of different skin colors, and he invites them into something called a kingdom. And we go, this, this story is irrelevant. This story has nothing to say to us. And I go, the, if you think highly of women today, it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. That brother showed up into a world where women were treated as second-class citizens. He showed up into a world where they were not being given the law. It's better to burn the law then teach it to women. And Jesus, he not only taught it to women, Jesus had women disciples. Like women followed him in his ministry. We're gonna talk about that in two weeks. I, I got two weeks to preach, so I picked like multiple women for both weeks, like five this week and eight the next. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> Can't just do two, I gotta do 12. He had disciples, women that followed and women that traveled, women that were at the tomb, women that were at the cross. So you go, man, women in that time were unempowered and uninspired and cast aside. Jesus draws them close, empowers them with the Holy Spirit, and then tells women, go make disciples to the ends of the earth. That's a picture that this world desperately needs that became the narrative of the church that became the beauty of the church, that became the otherworldly nature of the church that gets picked up on by all the other authors. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter three, he says, because of Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Now he's not saying we're like no longer who we are. He's saying Jesus has saved us all equally and we are all empowered equally and we are all drawn equally. Now there is deference in our role and we talk about that and there, there's some tension in that. But we believe that God has a design. And just because sinful people mess it up doesn't mean it doesn't have a design. And there's places where that design is not functioning and that doesn't lead to flourishing and we have to speak to those places. We have to talk to that stuff. But God is looking to create a people that don't look like this world. It is not impressive when everybody looks the same and acts the same and does the same thing and they go, oh, we're all together. Like if you go to a country music festival, generally those are all the same people. And you go there and you're like, this is not impressive. That guy on stage looks like all of you guys. Cool. The church is not supposed to look like a country music festival. Amen. <laughs> I don't like country music festivals personally. You can. That's the good news about the church. You can. And you can be welcomed here. And you can like rap music festivals. You can like R&B music. You can like any festival you want. You can like them all. doesn't matter. There's not, there's not, this isn't about race. This isn't about socioeconomic. This isn't about male, female. This is about unity in the body of Christ. And that's a big deal. And we go, that ancient book can't teach us anything. No, that ancient book was written by a timeless creator God who knows what's best for you. And Jesus was the revolutionary that started this whole thing anyways. If you think highly of women, it's because of Jesus. So in the Bible, the outsider is not an outsider because of skin color or money or any of those standings. The outsider is the person who has a hard heart towards God. And what makes you an insider is having a soft heart towards God. Did you hear Rahab? When I heard of you, it melted my heart. 
That's that's the picture, that you are an insider because of God inviting you in. And so when you think about the genealogy of Jesus, I I don't know if this is true, but, but I like to think like, what does God think every day? Like, what's, what's the question God asks himself? If God were to ask himself a question, I'm just making this up. I don't know if this is true. But I like to think if God were to ask himself a question every day, it'd be something like this. How can I put my glory on the most display, causing the most joy in my people? How could I put my glory on display the most, causing and inducing the most joy in my people? And the way that he can do that is drawing to himself a group of people that do not look like each other. That would be impressive. A group of people that mutually submit to one another, not based on the world's standards. That would be impressive. A group of people that treats each other like family, that has no business treating each other like family. That would be impressive. What Jesus puts on display is is a world that looks nothing like this world. And so to be a good testimony in our city, we need to, we need to be mindful of diversity and in, inclusion and, and, and kindness. That, that people with dark past and present struggles can be welcomed here. The people who look differently than us can be welcomed here because Jesus' uh, genealogy and his kingdom includes these people. And what's so great about his genealogy, which maybe this is just fun for me, like what's so great about all of this is the genealogy of Jesus would have been offensive to the religious people. They would have read it and been offended which is so fun because Jesus was always offensive to the religious people. They didn't want to teach women the law. Jesus was empowering women to be disciples. They wanted to not let uh, outsiders to become insiders. Jesus does this. And every one of these religious guys expected God to show up and reward the righteous. And yet God shows up and redeems the unrighteous. That's the gospel story. Religious people wanted God to show up and reward them for their self-righteousness. And God shows up and rewards and and redeems people who are unrighteous and it blows their minds and it frustrates them. And honestly, how you view that, let's let's be real, press on us real real quick. How you view that actually shows how you view God. So so just for fun, if if you're a rule follower, good doer, and, and just use like college acceptance as an illustration here, and you did everything right and you got accepted to college, you did it. And then one day the school shows up and goes, hey, I got great news. Everyone is accepted to college. And you're like, no, 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 they're not. No, they're not. That guy's terrible. She cheated on me in class every day. All those people just moved here. How do they get money? Like, and and something in your heart rises up and goes, no, 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 I did what it took. I did the right thing. And, And to some degree, you'd have a leg to stand on in this college fake argument I'm making here. But when you take that perception and you overlay that on God, which many of us do, you miss the gospel. That God has shown up and said, we are all outcasts. We are all the foreigner. We are all scandalous. And that is bad news. Unless there's an insider who has a birthright, who's never sinned, Unless that person loves me enough to invite me in, Boaz to Ruth. Unless I can be grafted in outside of anything I've done, I am in big trouble. And the good news is we have someone in the family who can redeem those outside of the family. And the genealogy of Jesus shows that. The character of Jesus shows that. The life of Jesus showed that. The death of Jesus showed that. The resurrection of Jesus showed that. And we see that in these women. So Matthew's genealogy includes the outcast, scandalous, and foreigner. 
because the family Jesus comes from anticipates the family he has come for. The family Jesus comes from anticipates the family Jesus has come for. And this should give us great comfort that no one is disqualified. No one is too far gone. No one has done too much sin. No one is, is too uneducated or from the wrong family. God knew the worst of us and he still fought for us. God knew the sin in us and he was still sent towards us. So stop putting restrictions on what God can do through you because of your past. Stop putting restrictions on what God can use you for because you're struggling with some stuff. So many of us are stuck in our stories going, well, God can't use me. My story's a mess. I used to be a prostitute. Yeah, maybe, right? Welcome, welcome. I know a story of a woman who used to be a prostitute in a dark city called Jericho, and this is how God used her. Stop putting limitations on yourself and your testimony and your, your ministry that God never put on you. God can use you. God uses sinners, real sinners, like commandment-breaking sinners. And he's not ashamed to use you because he wasn't ashamed to save you. He's not ashamed to put you on the family tree. He's not ashamed to put your picture up in the living room. He's not ashamed to call you family. He's not ashamed to leverage your story and your testimony. He's not ashamed of that. How can I say that so confidently? Because he wasn't ashamed of these women in his genealogy. He put them forth for us to say, Come to me however you are. Let me transform you through faith and let me send you out to leverage your story and your testimony for my glory and for your joy. Let me put you on display for my glory and for your joy. A couple weeks ago, my wife saw this picture um, that talked, it basically in one picture showed the story of the genealogy of Jesus from its first to last. And it's, it's this picture right here. It's a picture of Eve on the left holding the apple with a snake wrapped around her leg. Sadly, touching Mary's belly, Jesus. And if you see, Mary's foot is on the head of the snake. And that picture in, in one image, you see how in one woman, everything fell, one man, everything fell, and how in one woman and one man, Jesus, everything's gonna be brought right again. And that, that sinful struggle is where we are, and I hope you see that God is a redeeming God. And he's had a design. He has sovereignly been working from Eve all the way to Mary, and he wants to use you where you are, and he wants to move you forward. So let the story of Jesus' genealogy comfort you if you're a follower of Jesus, let it invite you if you're not a follower of Jesus and let it send you with no limitations on what God can do in your life because of your past or because of your struggles because that's the design that God uses and we see this so beautifully in these four women that were leveraged for the mission of God and that's the pattern that God wants to use in us if we would let him do it. So I wanna pray that we'd be the same kind of people now that it's our turn to be used for his mission. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the story you've written. From Adam and Eve, to Tamar, to Rahab, to Ruth, to Bathsheba, to Mary. God, you, you were designing something that would always send your son into the world to save sinners. And so Father, I, I thank you that, that you offer us 
salvation in Christ. And God, I thank you that you offer us salvation in Christ through a Christ who is qualified to save. The genealogy proves he's qualified to save. And it also shows the kind of people he's come to save. So Father, this morning, may we all humble ourselves and recognize that we were the foreigner, we were the outcast, and you came for us. And may we receive great comfort for knowing that that's the story. That's what you've always done. That's who you are. That's your character. And God, may we receive great comfort from Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, women who leverage their story to be used by you in powerful ways. God, I pray that we never think that you are only interested in perfect people or holy people or righteous people, but God, I pray we always realize that you are the only perfect, holy, and righteous one and you've come to save us. God, may that stir us to worship. May that stir us to sing to you and celebrate you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.